Welcome back to the Jacobin Show. I'm Jen Pan, as always, here with Paul Prescott. Paul, what's going on? How are you doing? I'm good. How was your Thanksgiving? It was good. It was good. It was a it was a friendsgiving for me. Uh, mm-hmm. What about you? Did you were you with family? Yeah, you know, with family, but luckily yeah. no fights or anything like that. No political fights. I, no. So, sorry, Paul, to say, I was Paul kind of disappointed. Some, Paul has some like political disagreement in his family isn't that right yeah i do you know my brother um (laughs) is a little bit to the right of me um but you know i think every shade of of political viewpoint is represented in my family so as as it should be right that's right um um well well speaking of different viewpoints we actually have uh two guests today uh chris maizano of course who is an editor and writer for jacobin he'll be coming on a little bit later to talk about basically the collapse of american democracy maybe collapse is too strong of a word um but he's going to be talking about uh american democracy and you know how the the various ways in which it's been eroded over the last several decades uh and then we after that we have a special labor paul guest paul do you want uh, do you want to say some things? We have the the other Paul in this world. Uh, we have a great guest, Paul Trujillo, who is a um, uh, Teamster. He's a UPS worker, also on the steering committee of Teamsters for a Democratic Union. And he's going to talk about the big victory in the uh, Teamster election where a reform slate is now in power. There's a lot of excitement about what does that mean for the future? What does that mean for organizing um, Amazon and, and everything like that? So I'm looking forward to that. We've talked about the Teamster election very briefly on the show in the past. Uh, I know you've touched on that, um, but just really quick before we like dive into everything else that we're going to cover today, um, just so people get hyped about the other Paul coming on, like right. what was so significant about this election? Yeah, so, you know, I think probably many viewers know the name Jimmy Hoffa, right? So he was president of the Teamsters throughout, you know, the 50s, 60s, uh, 70s. Um, and so, you know, for a while, Hoffa's son, Jimmy Hoffa Jr., was in power um, uh, of the Teamsters for the last maybe uh, 10, 15, 20 years. Um, and, you know, I think more importantly than that, you know, Teamsters represent some of the most strategic sectors in the economy, such as UPS being the big one. Um, and so, you know, it's been a very long time since the 1990s, since a reform slate has won in the Teamsters. Um, and so, you know, this is really like a new era for them. And there's a lot of, like I said before, a lot of excitement because, you know, I think if there's a union that's big enough and has potentially enough resources to organize a giant like Amazon, I think the Teamsters would be the one to do it. And now they have this energy of, you know, this new leadership that's really committed to rectifying organizing. But also even con- confrontations with existing companies like UPS, um, they have a contract expiring in 2023. So I think a lot of people are looking ahead to what will this new leadership do in their stance towards UPS. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm, I'll, our guests will talk more about this. But, you know, the last contract with UPS, there was a very disappointing, basically a uh, cave in from the leadership where a lot of members voted down a contract, but it was kind of forced through anyway. And I think mm-hmm. there's hopes that now there will be a different stance towards UPS this time around. Great. Well, to be continued. Yeah. And uh, and maybe, I mean, speaking of unions, I can get started on my segment, which is about, um, you know, union democracy and democracy be a big, big theme in this show. So, you know, I came across something 
through Twitter, which can be good for something sometimes. Um, it really ticked all the boxes for me, and I just had to comment on it. And it's an issue that deals with both teachers and unions and anti-racist thought at the same time. So recently, the Ontario Secondary Schools Teacher Federation District 20, a, a teachers union in Ontario, voted through a controversial item at the general membership meeting. And so in the name of equity and um, inclusion, they voted to weight the votes of, quote unquote, black, indigenous and racialized members more than white members. And the goal would be to ensure that the votes of non-white members will always represent at least 50 percent of the votes at the bargaining unit. And the local represents 1,400 teachers and staff. But to be clear, this voting measure would only apply to votes made by their leadership board. It wouldn't apply to votes by the general membership. And so though the measure passed, it was reported that the vote was contentious and some members raised the concern of, quote, reverse racism. And so, you know, first, the union put out a video explaining why the policy change was made and how it would work. Past practice of TBU Council were that each voting member get one vote. And that seems fair. One person equals one vote. But fair doesn't necessarily mean equitable. What if you found out that not all voices were being represented? especially those that belong to the most marginalized communities. Would this still be fair? Motion 8.2 was created to address the disproportionate representation of voting members of TPU Council. This means that quorum must include 50% representation of Indigenous, Black, or racialized members where possible. Otherwise, votes will be weighted to ensure a 50-50 representation. So what does this look like? Let's take a look at an example of voting on an issue. It has been brought to TBU Council that as a union, we have never recognized Diwali. It has been proposed that as we move forward, we need to change this. As a whole, 13 members voted for no and 7 voted for yes. As an entire council, we vote that we will not be officially recognizing Diwali as a holiday. Let's take a look at how this vote broke down across racial lines. For those who chose not to self-identify, 75% of the group chose not to officially observe this holiday. If we take a look at those who did self-identify, 75% of this group chose yes, we would like to observe Diwali. Now why is this disconcerting? Well, the social justice issue is important to Indigenous, Black, and racialized members, but was not heard. When we use weighted voting, we can see that the final outcome is significantly different. In this example, with the weighted votes, we can see that 50% voted for the motion and 50% against. This is quite a difference from the original vote of 65% against the recognition of this holiday. Voices of non-identifying members are heard, and voices of Indigenous, Black, and racialized voices are amplified so that they can also be heard. So, a lot to unpack there, but... I think it would be very concerning if this becomes the normal trend in how union democracy takes place. Because first of all, it's built on the fundamentally flawed assumption that non-white people, no matter their differences in racial identification or national origin or class background, will tend to vote the same on issues and thus can be counted as a unified voting bloc. Just anecdotal data and life experiences alone should make very clear that this is not true. But I think more profoundly, this approach of weighting certain votes more heavily than others undercuts the fundamental work a union organization fighting for racial justice needs to do. This approach discourages or disincentivizes the practice of union members, whether they're people of color or not, having to win over white members over to policies or practices that challenge racial inequality. 
That kind of real buy-in is what's needed in order to make substantial progress on these issues. The way the voter system could be used to get more anti-racist positions passed on paper, but they won't be very meaningful if members aren't actually invested in them. And as organizers, we need to constantly be in the practice of persuasion, of winning over the majority to our positions, even if we have to do so in unfair conditions. And this policy, I think, has a high chance of leading to the resentment from white members and an uncomfortable feeling of tokenism from members of color. And we have inspirational models from the past we can look at to see how unions can be turned into vehicles for fighting racial inequality with buy-in from white members. An example I brought up uh, before in the show and I've written about is the United Packing House Workers of America, which represented workers in meatpacking plants across the country. Because their workforce was uh, so diverse that they organized, they were forced to learn how to break down racial divisions and win white workers over to the fight for racial equality. And it's hard to imagine the union be able to do some of the things they did without truly winning over white workers. For example, solidarity between black and white workers on the job was leveraged in fights to desegregate local bars, restaurants, and hotels. A particularly effective tactic was to send teams of black and white workers into a local bar asking for service. When the black workers were denied service, whites would also walk out. Back at the Union Hall, a complaint would be filed with the state's attorney, and usually the establishments would have to desegregate. So in other words, this weighted voting system almost feels like a shortcut to the hard work of moving difficult and controversial work and policies and conversations through a democratic body. And it's not just in labor where we're seeing these kinds of proposals. Some have called for a similar system to be used in our electoral democracy. So in 2020, uh, Brandon Hausbrack wrote in The Nation and called for a kind of vote reparations, saying, we can implement vote reparations by double counting ballots cast by all black residents. Because white votes currently count more than black ones, double counting black votes would restore electoral balance. Vote reparations would be a giant step towards remedying our nation's long history of denying and devaluing black votes. To address systemic racism, we must transform how we choose our government. Even if vote reparations aren't instituted, black voters will keep tirelessly dragging our states towards a more perfect union. But just imagine if our country, if our votes counted twice. And again, I think this idea would immediately run into practical problems that stem from the basic fact that Black people can have and will continue to have diverging views and interests. For example, we know that throughout the 1980s and 1990s, there was substantial support from many Black communities for the vast expansion of the carceral state for a variety of complicated reasons. Today, polling on defunding the police finds that it has the least amount of support among Black communities. And this should not be surprising if we take seriously the idea that Black people are not a monolith and like any other group of people will have a variety of political viewpoints and interests. And this also means that giving extra weight to the votes of minorities probably won't end up where self-described anti-racists expect it to. And we're in a time where we desperately need to build majoritarian coalitions of working people. This is needed both in our movement organizing and in electoral politics. It's needed not just to win meaningful reforms, but to protect and consolidate those reforms. We're in a moment where we don't just need to convince working people that change would be good, which I think is actually the easier part. We need to be able to convince people that change is possible and that, it, that they need to be a part of making it a reality. I think the best organizers can relate to people as full, complex human beings that they are. Good organizers also don't make assumptions. 
you don't know until you have the conversation what a person most uh, person's most important issues are or what it will take to get them to take action. For example, many teachers care more about being able to get a bathroom break than maybe they do about their pay or care more about their active school programs getting cut than their class size. And you only know as an organizer when you have this conversation. So, you know, in conclusion, this weighted voting system makes too many assumptions about people of color as union members and as a voting bloc. And it circumvents the difficult, persuasive work of building majority support and buy-in for one's positions. Um, so, Jen, I, I'm sure you have a lot to say on this. Um, <laughs> this is kind of like a Jen-style segment, you know. But Yeah, um, Paul, you're uh, you're taking over. <laughs> that's true, yeah. Um, yeah, so first of all, that video was... I, I had not watched it before. It's crazy. I... I can't believe that uh, a video team, uh, you know, group of people made that animation and made that video in order to explain to union members why some people's votes should be counted uh, differently than other people's. I mean, I think that all of your points about, you know, not treating, you know, non-white or like, as they call it, racialized people as a cohesive block or constituency, that's a very fair point. I absolutely agree. But at the same time, like, no matter what their motivations are, this idea is like totally batshit. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know. And also, you know, I think one thing too is like, and this is just something I think the left needs to be better at, like a certain, just very pragmatic understanding of strategy. And, mm-hmm. you know, in this context it's like understanding that this kind of thing will probably breed a lot of resentment mm-hmm. from honestly, not just white members, but probably many white members, right? And it's like, and that also goes for many other kinds of ideas and and policies. And it's like, we can think maybe that's unfair, or we can say that's problematic, that they would feel resentment at this, or they shouldn't, you know, even if you want to make that argument, like it's a certain reality that we basically can guarantee 100% that they Mm -hmm. will feel that resentment. And it's going to be harder to do things in the unions and in the union in the future on that basis. And I think, you know, we got to get better at just like recognizing a certain reality and maybe saying maybe a different approach is better for trying to do these things we want to do. Right. I think the the other point that you made about how it will also lead to feelings of tokenism among, you know, right. the so-called racialized people whose weights are suddenly being counted more, like that's creepy. If you were in that situation, wouldn't you be like, this is creepy? Yeah. And, and you know, and also another practical question is like, I mean, what about issues that they discuss this board is voting on that does not necessarily have to do with race or mm-hmm. identity? So mm-hmm. it's like, what if it's like a, a budget question? You know, I think it would raise eyebrows and questions of like, why necessarily on that issue should certain people have have more weighted votes? But and again, I don't want to speak for those teachers in Ontario. Like, again, it did pass. I don't know how the members. It, it passed under the old non-weighted system. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's a, that's a good question. Good question. I guess I had we to, don't know. <laughs> you know, but I just know if I were in that situation, and in that case, my vote would be one of those that would be weighted. That would just make me extremely uncomfortable mm-hmm. and just feeling weird and kind of just like feeling that other people would uh, resent me for that. Um, so you know, again, I think- I, yeah, I, I I don't know if this is going to be a new trend. Um, I kind I, I hope not, but we'll see what happens. I think also your comments about um, how we want to and how we're trying to build a majoritarian coalition are really pertinent here. And I know that we'll get into a little more of this with Chris Maizano once he comes on. Um, But like, that's just it. We want to build majoritarian coalitions. We don't want a minoritarian rule that is more diverse. 
right? Right. Yeah. And again, I think if we actually want to achieve racial justice, and I know I, I always bring up the packing house workers of America, but again, what was so incredible to me is, again, you're talking about like the 1940s, 1950s, like they actually managed to win over many white workers to support these explicitly, mm -hmm. uh, they wouldn't use the term anti-racist policies, but you know, policies that address racial discrimination. And again, that's a much better place to be in than if they had weighted votes and kind of like begrudgingly, they right. just had to accept, you know, I don't think you would have the buy-in from the members to be able to do, you know, more meaningful work. And I think so this kind of is like, just feels like a shortcut to having to do the, the work, as they say, the much more difficult work um, of, of making that happen. Yeah, I mean, when you think about the most meaningful, you know, civil rights uh, legislative victories, um, just speaking, you know, on a national level and not just isolating it to a union, like all of those reforms were also won by broad based majoritarian coalitions fighting from the ground up. They were not these kind of like top down efforts to engineer so-called equity among by doing like weird shit, like weighting people's votes differently. Um, and, you know, I think that that like, as you were saying, that's what makes uh, change and reform more durable in the long term is when it comes from a broad based coalition from the bottom up rather than the opposite. Right. Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, just before I like actually launch in, I do want to mention that uh, what I'm going to be talking about today is it relates to the opioid crisis, which if you are a loyal watcher of The Jacobin Show, you'll know that Ariella and Megan Day and I covered the opioid crisis in pretty, you know, great detail on last week's episode. Um, and I, you know, so, so this would have been maybe better suited for last week. But I actually didn't bring this up last week because I kind of thought that no one was still pushing this narrative. And the narrative that I'm talking about, and Paul, I'm sure that you have heard this many times as well, is that the government response and the societal response to the opioid crisis was extremely different than the response to the crack epidemic in the 80s and 90s because opioid victims are white and the victims of the crack epidemic were black. Like this is something that we've heard basically since the beginning of the opioid crisis. Um, and, you know, I, I wanted to unpack that a little bit because on the one hand, you know, obviously the response to the crack epidemic from the government was extremely punitive uh, and like, let's be honest, racist. But does that actually mean that the opioid epidemic has been handled gently? It's an open question. All right. Well, <laughs> I guess on that note, uh, let me just launch into it. And then, Paul, I will get your thoughts afterwards. So a few years ago, when the opioid crisis was starting to become a major topic in the mainstream press, you might remember a mad rush by pundits to contrast it with the crack epidemic of the 1980s and 90s. Usually that commentary went something like this. Today, police chiefs facing heroin addiction are responding not by invoking war, but by trying to save lives and get people into rehab. Suddenly, crime is understood as a sign of underlying addiction rather than a scourge to be eradicated. One former narcotics officer said, these are people. They have a purpose in life and we can't look at it any other way. But he couldn't quite put his finger on just what had changed. His words reflect our collective self-denial. It's hard to describe how bittersweet many African Americans feel witnessing this. Glad to be rid of a failed war on drugs, yes, but also weary and embittered. When the faces of addiction had dark skin, the police didn't see sons and daughters, sisters and brothers. They saw brothers, young thugs to be locked up, not people with a purpose in life. 
No one laments the violence the crack bombs set off more than African Americans. But how we respond to the crimes accompanying addiction depends on how much we care about those affected. White heroin addicts get overdose treatment, rehabilitation, and reincorporation. Black drug users got jail cells and just say no. Let's look at another example. In 2017, Vox reporter Herman Lopez wrote, It's clear that, despite some of the other factors in play, race played a big role in why the crack epidemic produced a crackdown focused almost entirely on -on tough-on-crime strategies, while the current opioid crisis has not to the same extent. He expanded on these comments on a podcast episode titled A Tale of Two Crises, Opiates versus Crack. So the federal response to the opioid epidemic has been fairly different in that There's a lot more talk of treatment. And the Obama administration, in fact, and the the Trump administration have both scaled up funding for addiction treatment. Over the past decade, investment in addiction treatment has skyrocketed. In 2017, for example, Congress passed with bipartisan support a $3.3 billion package of opioid crisis grants. It, among other things, provided addiction treatment and recovery support. Communities across the country have even supported harm reduction strategies that politicians in the past have balked at as too controversial, like needle exchange. Pretty different. Rather than focus on policing, prison, and punishment, we're funding treatment and support. Now, it is, of course, true that Obama, Trump, and members of Congress publicly wrung their hands for a bit about opioid deaths and said they would direct more federal money to drug treatment. All that said... Talk is cheap. Let's check in on what this supposed outpouring of attention and compassion for white victims actually did to alleviate the opioid crisis. First of all, did U.S. law enforcement actually roll back tough-on-crime policies and stop throwing people in jail for drugs once the users were perceived to be white and not black? No, they did not. In fact, over the last decade, so many rural, predominantly white counties have cracked down on drug offenses and sent so many people to prison that racial disparities in the national prison population have actually started to narrow. As the Vera Institute found a few years ago, between 1990 and 2013, incarceration rates for Black people actually declined, while incarceration rates for white people increased. Blacks, of course, are still disproportionately incarcerated, but as the Vera Institute wrote in a report, white jail incarceration rates have steadily grown across all regions and jurisdiction types since 1990. It appears that small to medium metros and rural areas are experiencing the largest growth in jail incarceration of white people. So what's going on in these rural areas that are sending more people to jail? Well, a different report by the New York Times in 2016, aka around the same time that pundits were insisting that white opioid addicts were getting addiction treatment instead of jail time, found that the opioid crisis was at least partly responsible for driving this increase in white incarceration. According to the Times, Rural, mostly white and politically conservative counties have continued to send more drug offenders to prison, reflecting the change in geography of addiction. While crack cocaine addiction was centered in cities, opioid and meth addiction are ravaging small communities like those in Dearborn County, where 97% of the population is white. The extraordinarily high incarceration rate here, about 1 in 10 adults is in prison, jail, or probation, is driven less by crime and poverty than by a powerful prosecutor, hardline judges, and a growing heroin epidemic. 
Let's also not forget that in 2017, then-Attorney General Jeff Sessions reintroduced stricter sentencing guidelines, including renewed mandatory minimums for most federal drug crimes. In other words, even if the media and some politicians started talking about drug addiction as a public health crisis rather than a crime, it's questionable at best whether this new warm and fuzzy rhetoric translated to any kind of meaningful reform that actually helped the majority of people suffering from opioid addiction. Furthermore, it's one thing to say that addiction is a health problem and that people should get treatment. It's another thing entirely to make that treatment accessible and affordable. And surprise, surprise, since the opioid crisis began, our incredibly dysfunctional for-profit healthcare system has not made it any easier for people to get addiction treatment. In fact, just a few years after he wrote that opioid users were getting better treatment than crack users because they were white, journalist Herman Lopez did some great reporting for a project called Rehab Racket on the prohibitive costs of addiction treatment during the opioid crisis. Lopez talked to multiple families struggling to pay for treatment, and here's his overview of what the project found. He writes, from all of these experiences, one theme emerges. Addiction treatment in the U.S. is expensive, hard to navigate, and far too often fails people. The stories we've published so far speak to these problems. Kim and Tim Blake spent more than $110,000 on treatment for their oldest son, yet much of that treatment was unhelpful and he died anyway. Michelle Coates' daughters went through $200,000 worth of treatment over a decade before they finally found something that worked for them. Nan Warren faces financial ruin after she lost her oldest son to addiction and has spent years trying to avoid the same fate for her surviving daughter. These and other stories in the Rehab Bracket Project make it painfully clear that getting treatment for addiction in the U.S. is still extremely costly and difficult, no matter the race of who's trying to get it. As we know, even people with good health insurance often fall through the cracks when it comes to drug addiction. As William Stoffer, the director of a drug recovery in- network in Pennsylvania, wrote last year, despite well-meaning rhetoric and funding from sources both public and private, the U.S. has an appalling dearth of person-centered care for the millions of Americans living with addiction, the biggest public health crisis of our time. According to the National Institute on Drug Abuse, treatment for less than 90 days is of limited effectiveness and treatment lasting significantly longer is recommended for maintaining positive outcomes. But few Americans get anywhere near 90 days of care. Within the confines of existing insurance networks, short-term treatment of 28 days or less is all that most Americans are offered if they can get any help at all. In 2015, around 52,000 people in the U.S. died of drug overdoses. In 2020, as we now know, over 100,000 people died of drug overdoses, the majority due to fentanyl and other synthetic opioids. So I think the claim that society suddenly started treating the victims of the opioid epidemic with compassion and urgency because they were white is questionable at best and shockingly counterproductive at worst. Yes, some of the rhetoric around drug use may have changed since the drug since the crack epidemic. But it turns out that gentler rhetoric alone just doesn't go very far when it comes to actually reforming criminal justice or overturning the incredibly cruel for-profit healthcare system that has exacerbated the opioid crisis. I want to end by noting that plenty of people did have doubts about the racialized framing of the opioid crisis from the very beginning. Here are two Detroit residents, Desiree Cooper and Daryl Dewberry, speaking to a local news station back in 2018. 
any words that you would like to get out to people who would look at this and say, it's still a white person's problem. Desiree? Don't say that. <laughs> you know, like Daryl just said, it's a people problem. Um, and we are not safe. And we ought to know from experience that when the majority culture, you know, catches the flu, we catch pneumonia. Hmm. That it's going to be triple, yeah. tripling more lethal when it does come to our community. And, you know, we have to be careful as a community to not be fooled by a cunning disease. You know, if we get into uh, dealing with the race card, we will lose focus on very precious information that will lead us to resources. The white community, the black community, the Hispanic and Latino community, you know, the Asian community, we're all dying. You know, so we need to adhere, listen, stay attent, you know, so that we can help save collectively all lives. And now, just as Cooper and Dewberry predicted, overdose death rates among non-white people appear to be spiking. Recently, two researchers at UCLA looked at data from the CDC and found that in 2020, the overdose death rate for Black and Native Americans exceeded the overdose rate for white Americans for the first time since the 1990s. Unfortunately, these researchers' response to this concerning rise was simply to crank out a funhouse mirror version of the same counterproductive narrative of the opioid crisis we've been hearing from the start. In an op-ed for the LA Times, they wrote, Shifting racial trends in overdose reflect the profound ways that race shapes access to drugs, treatment, and justice in America. And they add new urgency to the need to address overdose and addiction through a racial justice lens. But here's another idea, just based on how things have gone over the last several years. Maybe racializing a drug crisis where hundreds of thousands of people have already died in order to figure out exactly how much attention and urgency our government should give it is a total dead end. Yeah, yeah you know, I mean, one thing I wonder with the change in the rhetoric around, um, you know, uh, drug use being more talking about rehab and things. I mean, I, I kind of wonder if this has just been a progression similar to kind of how we talk about policing, where it's, mm. I, I think today it, it is more, there's it, I think there's much less appetite for, for tough on crime policies and talking about it that way, even though clearly it's not a matter of because more white people are getting killed by police, even though that actually is true, but it's definitely in the media narrative. It's more about, you know, what we see all the time and what it's talked mm -hmm. about is about, um, you know, how racial minorities are being um, murdered by the police. So, you know, I, I think that's kind of one example where I think it's just been evolving. And I think part of that is the work of, of activists kind of forcing that change. In yeah, I was going to say the shift yeah. in rhetoric is good, whether it relates yeah. to policing, like as you were saying, like it's great now that, you know, it's less easy for, uh, I don't know, politicians and law enforcement to like get a, get away with racist right. dog whistles or like with victim blaming. That That is all good. Same with the drug crisis, you know? I yeah. mean, like it's good that, you know, people are no longer like talking about like crack babies or like, I don't know, like, you know, like crack making people into demons or whatever, or like opioids making people into demons. Um, the, rhetoric, the change in rhetoric is all good. And I think that you're right, that it is very much a product of some of the activism from that time period. Um, but I think what I wanted to show is like, what does it amount to, you know? Right. And that was my, you know, when you kind yeah. of pose that question before your segment, and I guess part of me is wondering, was like, well, yeah, I mean, what are they actually doing about the opioid crisis? Like, mm -hmm. are we making progress? And it clearly seems like like we're not. Um, 
and yeah, that that rhetoric doesn't amount to money or funding or, or really dealing with this thing. And again, I'm kind of going to go back to this strategy question of like, you know, even if you think it's really true that they're talking about it differently, they're doing something differently because it's white people. Again, where do we think we're going to get by like uh, harping on that? Mm-hmm. Um, because again, it's clearly this is an issue that needs to be addressed. And mm-hmm. like, where do we think we're going to get with people who are suffering from this crisis if we're like, well, you know, this is being done differently now. And it's right. like, okay, well, I mean, it still needs to be addressed, right? <laughs> right and it's right. like, I don't know where we're going to get with that. So, uh, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, you know, part of what I wanted to get at is like, I think it's actually totally possible to look at uh, the way that drug policy and policing was handled during the crack epidemic and to point at that and say, this was obviously wrong. Tough on crime was wrong and and counterproductive. And the way that this, this was handled was racist and punitive. It's entirely possible to do that without also being like, oh, and the opioid crisis is like getting handled so, so much differently because these people are white. You know, I mean, like, again, I... I just, when you really look, I didn't even like include all of the information that I found about, you know, uh, how many people go to jail uh, because of opioids, um, how hard it is to get rehab and how like deeply fucked the rehab system is. I mean, it's just like, there's, it's just very hard for me to like, accept that the opioid crisis is being handled in like a kind and compassionate and gentle way. And like, even when you look at the numbers, like, a hundred thousand deaths in a year is staggering. Like there's no way that we can say that the opioid crisis is under control, like by any stretch of the imagination. And I also want to point out that like, one reason why I find the comparison of like, you know, the different victims of different drug crises to be a little counterproductive is because I think when you say, I think when you like put forward this narrative that, um, that the opioid crisis is being handled differently. People, instead of being sent to jail, are you know getting getting sent to rehab. When you put that narrative forward, it sounds like we're solving the opioid the opioid crisis, or that we like are close to getting it under control. And that's just not true at all. Yeah, absolutely. And like you know, the other the thing with the opioid crisis, mm-hmm. what kind of makes it different as well is like the need to, to go after like the the big pharmaceutical companies that are also partly responsible. Um, you know. For, for making this happen. Um, but yeah, it's clearly like that's not happening, right? Like we don't really see that being done in a big mm-hmm. way. Um, and yeah, it really just begs the question. So it's like, it's like, are you saying we should not be uh, taking this seriously? <laughs> right, or, right. You know? And, yeah. Um, and again, I, look, I mean, like I said, I just, I just think it's a dead end. I just yeah, think it's a dead end. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well um, and I, I just want to, I just want to add one last note, which is the reason why I like, I don't know, like, decided to go off about this is because after Ariella and I, you know, did our episode last week with Megan Day, Ariella told us that she was like in her car or something and was listening to some like liberal talk show, like panel discussion. And someone trotted out this line again, that Mm. people only care about the opioid crisis because the victims are white. And it's like, I, I, let's, let's, let's just shut the door on this. Right. Yeah. And now that you did the segment and that person saw it now. Right. Yeah. Now everything. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. If you were on that uh, talk show radio panel, you're obviously watching the Jacobin show. And please, please take what I say (laughs) to heart. I'm just kidding. 
All right. Well, I think that we have our first guest, Chris yeah. Maizano, with us. So let's go ahead and bring him out. Uh, Chris Maizano, as I think you all know, is a contributing editor at Jacobin and also a member of the editorial board over at Catalyst. Um, Chris, among other topics, I feel like you've kind of unofficially been on the democracy beat uh, for Jacobin and Catalyst for a few years. So I, I just want to start by revisiting um, an article you wrote for Catalyst a few years ago called Democracy's Morbid Symptoms. In your article, um, I feel like you kind of look at a couple different perspectives on democracy that uh, sort of consolidated under the Trump era, right? So, you know, when Trump was president, there was obviously a lot of concern that he was violating democratic norms, uh, that, you know, American democracy was like steps from, you know, complete collapse. Uh, and you wrote your article before the 2020 election and obviously before the Capitol riot. But as we all know, after the 2020 election, you know, Trump uh, tried to overturn the results and then, of course, encouraged his rally goers to storm the Capitol. So this is all to say that there is clearly like ample cause for concern when it comes to Trump's relationship to democracy. But I think something that's really interesting about your piece in Catalyst is um, you point out that very often liberal commentators will kind of conceive of threats to democracy as really just like attacks on civility or attacks on political norms um, or even attacks on elite institutions, right? Um, and you argue uh, that this is actually like not the most productive way to think about democracy. So just by way of opening, um, I wanted to ask you, like, what is a better way of understanding the ongoing uh, so-called crisis of democracy? And has anything really changed since the Trump era? Well, first of all, thank you for having me here on the show. Um, happy to be here and to see you too and talk to you a little bit about all this. Um, it's a great question. Um, yeah, I think what I was trying to get at in that piece, um, among other things, was, yeah, this um, this line of argumentation or kind of this, um, uh, yeah, this, this theme, this recurrent theme that emerged, um, you know, under the Trump administration, um, you know, which, which was very common uh, in, you know, kind of mainstream uh, publications, most many of which are aimed at, you know, fairly well-educated and liberal audiences, uh, you know, in which, you know, the, the, the threat that, that Trump and the Republican Party posed, um, you know, to democracy, uh, you know, in general or to American institutions and things like that had to do with, um, you know, Trump's assault uh, and the Republican Party's assault on, you know, the norms. Uh, you know, we, we heard about this all the time. Um, and, um, you know, these norms had to do in, in, in many cases, um, in, in the view of a lot of these commentators with, you know, the civility and bipartisanship that, you know, in, in their view used to exist, uh, in American politics, uh, and, you know, is, is sort of the, the, the background condition or, um, kind of like the underlying sort of cultural condition that, uh, you know, allows democracy in their view to, to proceed, uh, and to pre prevent it from kind of getting out of hand and and producing these sorts of intractable conflicts um, that um, you know seem to have really set in uh, here in the U.S. over the last few years and which are not uh, you know uh, amenable to any kind of you know collaboration or cooperation or compromise. Um, and you know in this kind of telling, it's those sorts of norms around civility and bipartisanship and and, and compromise. Uh, you know, that are, uh, you know, cast as the, the sort of essential condition 
um, you know, of democracy rather than, you know, competition, rather than conflict, rather than, um, you know, real kind of, uh, you know, conflict over, you know, the good, different conceptions of the good society and, and, and what it should should be. Um, so, yeah, I, that was one of the, the motivating factors be, behind, uh, you know, writing this piece and for taking up that um, that kind of question, because, yeah, in my view, and I think, you know, we, we would all agree, you know, the Trump administration, the Republican Party in general, the Republican Party in general, the broader uh, right wing uh, in the United States really does uh, pose some real threats to to democracy, um, such as it is in the United States. Um, and they should be combated and confronted at every single turn. But if we're looking at, you know, norm erosion or, you know, attacks on or breaches of civility uh, and so on as as the threat, um, rather than, you know, attacks on the right to vote, rather than attacks on the right of working people to organize, rather than the kind of fundamentally uh, anti-majoritarian uh, and in a lot of respects, anti-democratic nature of the American political system itself, uh, you know, if we're not looking at those things and instead we're looking at things like civility and norms and what have you, which I don't want to entirely, you know, kind of dismiss as unimportant, but, you know, which I think are, are, are symptoms here rather than causes. If we're not looking at those really, you know, I think primary underlying factors and, and causes behind, uh, you know, the real erosion, I think, of, of democratic politics, not just in the U.S., uh, you know, but in a lot of other countries as well, then, you know, I think we're, uh, we're missing the point here. Uh, and uh, the sorts of political interventions that we would um, therefore try to make um, won't be as effective as they might be otherwise. So oh, I just want to, I, I, sorry, I just want to quickly follow up on that um, by asking about uh, Biden, right? Because he's, he's in office now, Trump's gone. Uh, so we have the restoration of all of the norms. Um, and we also have, uh, you know, Democratic administration that is pretty vocal about, you know, opposing some of the rights uh, attempts to like gerrymander or, you know, institute new uh, voting rights or sorry, institute no, new voting restrictions. Sorry. Um, but I guess the question for you is like, you know, given what you I have identified as the sort of more fundamental uh, assaults on democracy, how much has really changed since Biden took office? Well, you know, we haven't seen too much uh, in the way of, I think, real substantive change um, on this front um, for a whole host of reasons. Um, I do think it's worth kind of underscoring and staying with, um, you know, for a moment, uh, you know, the various things that the Republicans have tried to do, um, you know, not just in Congress, but also just as importantly, uh, you know, at the state level, um, you know, here in the country, um, you know, since since last fall's election. Um, you know, I just saw a tweet earlier today by Bernie Sanders, you know, where he says something like 33 states uh, around the country have passed laws over the last you know, year or so, uh, you know, making it harder to cast votes uh, than it was before uh, in the state. You know, considering the barriers to voting and the relatively low levels of political participation in the country, um, you know, during nor nor so-called normal times, you know, that, that that's quite bad. Um you know, in addition to those sorts of bar barriers, uh, you know, to voting that I think you know, probably most of our viewers are pretty familiar with, uh, you know, they've also been taking advantage of their, um, you know, their their political advantage in many states around the country to uh, really drive this current round of redistricting, 
um, that happens once every 10 years um, in relationship with the census. So, you know, there's all kinds of um, moves at, uh, at the state level in, in, in states where Republicans tend to dominate mm-hmm. um, to draw maps that are, you know, extremely favorable to the Republican Party and, and to its incumbents. Uh, so that it becomes extremely difficult, if not totally impossible, um, to vote them out of a majority, uh, even if, uh, you know, the Democrats, which, you know, is going to be the main opposition party to them, uh, even if they win majorities of the vote for, you know, their delegations to Congress or to their delegations to the state legislature. Um, and, yeah, the, we see this happening in states like Texas, Georgia, um, uh, just all over the map. Uh, and it's very concerning. Uh, and, um, you know, I think that, um, you know, democratic socialists, people on the left uh, should be very alarmed uh, about these various attempts to, um, you know, undermine even the very limited and contested forms of democracy that we have in the United States and to do what we can uh, to combat them. Um, you know, Biden and the Democratic Party as a whole, its leaders in Congress have, you know, I think talked actually a fairly good game about what uh, the Republican Party is trying to do and has done uh, in the places where it dominates politically. Unfortunately, that has not translated yet into uh, much in the way of a substantive response. Uh, You know, there have been two attempts to pass uh, voting rights bills in Congress so far this year, uh, and they've both been defeated, and they've both been defeated because of the Senate filibuster, first Mm -hmm. and foremost. Um, You know, I think the most recent attempt to pass uh, a voting rights bill in the Senate got the support of all 50 Democrats and one Republican, uh, Lisa Murkowski from Alaska. But so long as the filibuster rule exists, that's not enough. You know, you're going to need to get to 60 votes. So, um, you know, it's it's I think it's it's put up or shut up time, uh, you know, for, for Democrats in Washington uh, and in Congress uh, and in the White House. You know, if we're going to go around saying that, you know, what the Republican Party is trying to do uh, you know, is a fundamental existential threat um, to democracy in the United States, then the response has to be commensurate to that threat. Um, things like the Senate filibuster, which is a norm, uh, you know, need to be confronted uh, and dismantled, uh, taken apart, abolished, so that, you know, m- legislation that has majority support, not just in the population at large, but, you know, also in Congress as well, uh, can actually get passed um, so that, it, it, which, you know, these, these bills wouldn't necessarily completely transform, you know, the, the nature of elections uh, or of the basic structure and, and system of representation in the United States, but would, you know, push back, I think, fairly meaningfully uh, against some of the worst Republican attacks on voting rights and similar things in the states, would do things like restore some of the basic, um, very basic protections uh, that uh, the Supreme Court gutted from the Civil Rights Act um, uh, a few years ago and the Voting Rights Act a few years ago. Uh, and, you know, would do something minimally meaningful uh, to address these these threats to democracy. To date, they haven't really followed through on that in a substantive and, and practical way. Um, and I hope we see that, um, that kind of action uh, take place. Uh, and it's up to people like us, I think, um, to to keep pushing, to keep organizing, and to keep fighting, um, so that um, the rhetoric that we see coming out of the Biden administration, that we see coming out of official Washington, among the leaders of the Democratic Party, 
you know, turns into some real, uh, some real action uh, and some real meaningful uh, reform of things like the archaic Senate rules and the filibuster uh, and so forth. So that something could actually be done to combat what the Republicans are trying to do at the state level, uh, uh, which, you know, is, is really quite alarming and should be fought. Mm-hmm. And one particularly undemocratic feature of the U.S. state you write a lot about is federalism. So I think kind of give us a refresher civics lesson. I mean, what is federalism and, and how does this play out in terms of how do you unite the, our state is actually organized and functions? Sure. Yeah, good question. So, yeah, well, what federalism refers to is essentially the kind of uh, def- the fragmentation or the kind of uh, 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 the, the decentralization of political authority uh, in the United States, um, you know, uh, this is this operates kind of in two directions. One direction is vertically and another direction is horizontally. So, you know, vertically speaking, that means we've got the federal government, we've got the state governments and we've got the various local governments underneath those state governments. Uh, and then horizontally, you know, that refers to all the various relationships uh, between the states. So basically what, what that means practically is like there's, you know, unlike in some other countries where there's more of a centralized and unitary form of government, uh, you know, we have more of a, of a decentralized and fragmented form of government. Uh, and that's, I think, very important for a whole host of reasons. Uh, and, and one of them uh, means that one of, one of the, the ramifications of that means that, um, you know, we can see some real inequality uh, in this country in terms of, uh, you know, the level of social services that are provided, the general quality of government uh, that is provided, the level of, of democratic participation that is available to people uh, in this country based on basically the accident of where they happen to live. Uh, and, you know, for me, and I think for probably most of the viewers of the show, um, you know, that violates some very kind of basic, uh, you know, democratic uh, principles. Uh, you know, I don't think uh, that uh, the level of uh, political participation that's available to you should depend on what state you're at, you, you happen to live in, or whether you have access to something like Medicaid should be dependent on what state you live in. Um, so, yeah, uh, that that kind of basic system of federalism that we have in this country, uh, which kind of decentralizes and fragments uh, power and political authority, um, yeah, can lead to these very, um, you know, in my view, uh, undemocratic, um, you know, infringements on people's uh, basic uh, uh, rights and freedoms based on, you know, who happens to dominate politically and say whatever state or locality someone happens to live in. It does seem like, you know, champions of federalism will all will often kind of try to make the case that federalism is good for democracy or it's like expanding democracy in a way, right? Like if you don't like what the federal government is doing, your state, you can vote for laws in your state that can like overturn or ignore those laws Um, or, you know, within a city or municipality, you can do the same thing, right? So um, I'm from Idaho. So like, unfortunately, the first thing that came to my mind is uh, Second Amendment sanctuary cities, which which is like a thing that's happening in Idaho where, you know, you'll have cities and counties that are like, we refuse to recognize the federal government's like gun laws uh, and we're not going to enforce them here. Um, but, you know, to take like a more progressive example or whatever, like you can also see that we're not going to be able to pass Medicare for all in the U.S. without obviously a very hard and long protracted fight um, because of institutions like the Senate. But is there a chance that it could happen on the state level? 
unclear, you know? So, so I guess the question is sort of like, is there a way in which federalism can work to our advantage or like, or um, is that view misguided? Great question. Yeah, I mean, uh, this idea of the the states being, you know, so-called laboratories of democracy is an idea that comes, um, you know, out of the progressive period uh, in the early part of the 20th century when, uh, you know, progressive reformers of various types, um, you know, uh, uh, tried to use state government in order to sort of test out or pioneer, uh, you know, new forms of social uh, policy that, um, you know, theoretically then could spread um, you know, to other states based on, on their example. Uh, you know, I, I think in a country as, as big and, you know, as uh, varied and diverse as the United States is, I, I do think that there's something to be said for, you know, some level, a uh, meaningful level of political and, and administrative uh, decentralization. Unfortunately, however, I think the, 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 the particular mode um, of uh, kind of decentralization or a federalism uh, that we've seen in the United States has operated, uh, you know, mostly to protect and advance the interests of people who already have power and to make it extremely difficult uh, in various ways um, for poor people, working class people, uh, you know, African-Americans and, you know, other people that have been on the short end of the stick uh, uh, throughout American history. has made it really difficult for those people to, to organize, uh, to advance and defend their, their own interests. Um, What's particularly interesting and I think ironic and frustrating to me about uh, the way that federalism is practiced here in the United States is that it, it often doesn't actually in practice allow for a greater degree of, um, you know, local experimentation, local democracy and things like that um, because of the central role that the states play uh, in, in, in the form of federalism that we have in the United States. You know, just over the last few years, uh, you, we've seen in a number of cities where uh, you know, the left and, and you know, I guess progressives in, in general, uh, where, where, you know, kind of the, the center left and the left uh, is relatively strong, where, you know, activists, you know, or, or in organizers, uh, organizations have tried to pass, uh, you know, fairly progressive legislation at the local level around things like, uh, you know, minimum wages or environmental policy or LGBTQ uh, policy, only to see these laws um, preempted. Uh, by, you know, reactionary governments at the state level. Uh, because here in the U.S., our, our form of federalism really centers the state. It's a state-based kind of federalism. Um, and um, in our, our, our case law and our constitutional sort of theory and history, uh, you know, the locality, the municipality uh, is seen as a creature of the state um, rather than kind of its own independent entity with its own sort of uh, sources of authority. So what, what winds up happening is uh, it just so happens that, you know, cities, uh, kind of more urban and metropolitan areas, traditionally have been the places, at least in the 20th century where the, uh, and into the 21st century, where, you know, left, broadly speaking, has been strongest, uh, where uh, it, theoretically, at least, it would be the easiest for it to win political power and see through, um, you know, something of a, of, a, of a progressive legislative agenda locally. Uh, but when it has tried to do that, um, you know, if the state happens to be dominated uh, by uh, either Republican or, you know, corporate and establishment Democrats, you know, those localities can sometimes, you know, run into either delays in, um, you know, implementation of laws or just an outright rep repeal uh, or preemption of, of progressive legislation in the case of, 
uh, you know, progressive min- municipalities, uh, you know, trying to do things that kind of reactionary state government just says, no, sorry, uh, you can't do that. Uh, if you try to do that, we're going to harm you in X, Y, Z ways. Uh, you know, another way, another instance where we, we've seen that happen recently over the past, you know, year or two is when, you know, local uh, local municipalities try to do things like, you know, require mask wearing in schools and things like that. But, you know, then the state government turns around and says, hey, if you go ahead and try to do that, um, we're going to take away your funding or we're going to do other things to make your life miserable. You know, we've seen that happen in Florida, for instance, over the last year or so. So, yeah, the, it's it, it's a it's a system of, of federalism that, uh, you know, in, in the telling of its defenders, is supposed to allow for, you know, diversity, freedom, experimentation, you know, the states as laboratories of democracy and things like that. But, you know, more often than not, in practice, the states have been these engines of, of inequality. Uh, and, uh, you know, in many cases, they've also uh, been, um, you know, kind of the, the uh, they, they've also crushed, uh, you know, attempts to, uh, you know, experiment politically and with policy um, at, the, at the most local level, uh, at the municipal level. Um, so, you know, the, I think the track record here um, for American style federalism um, is great. It doesn't uh, it doesn't, uh, you know, I think, live up to uh, uh, the lofty promises that its defenders have made for it um, over time. Uh, and, you know, it also tends to, in practice, snuff out actual attempts at experimenting with, uh, you know, with democracy and with public policy at, at the local level. And, you know, one symptom of this federalism that you also mentioned is uh, it kind of exasperates this urban-rural divide in our politics. And this is, I mean, a big problem um, for the left of what we're trying to do politically is this urban-rural divide. So, I mean, what are some things the left can do to start bridging this divide? And are there any recent examples of whether a candidate or an organization or a movement kind of successfully bridging that urban-rural divide? Sure. Another great question that's, you know, very relevant and, and a difficult uh, one to deal with. So, yeah, let's kind of take a step back for a minute and kind of identify exactly, you know, what the roots of this are and why it's such a kind of a difficult problem to deal with. So here in the U.S., we have, you know, what are known as winner take all single member districts. Um, and if you look at the U.S. and you look at similar countries uh, or countries where they have this kind of um, similar system of, of electoral representation, what winds up happening is that they tend to bias uh, parties of the, le- of the left or even the center left uh, by making it relatively more difficult for them to translate votes into seats uh, in a legislature. OK, why does that happen? This political scientist named Jonathan Rodden, um, you know, he does a great job of laying all this out, of explaining why this is the case in a book uh, that he published a couple of years ago called Why Cities Lose. And, you know, to make a long story short, this happens because left-wing voters um, in the U.S. and in other countries um, tend to be more geographically concentrated. They tend to be concentrated in more highly urbanized, um, kind of more densely populated areas for a whole host of reasons that, you know, we, we can get to here if we, if we want to. But in general, progressive, left-wing, socialist, whatever voters tend to be more geographically concentrated while conservative voters tend to be more evenly distributed uh, in space. So the, the, the system of representation that we have in, in this country and in countries where they've got a similar kind of system, um, you know, already tends to, to be biased against the left uh, and in favor of the right. Um, and then, of course, you know, the Republicans come along, conservatives come along, and then, you know, layer gerrymandering and all the other stuff 
that they do on top of that, uh, which then makes an already, you know, difficult uh, situation uh, even worse. And, you know, they do that through various strategies. Um, you know, viewers may have heard of some of these like, uh, you know, cracking and packing, uh, you know, for, exa- uh, for example, uh, you know, cracking uh, happens when uh, map makers, the people who come up with these maps for representational purposes, uh, take a, 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 an area, a, a concentrated area of, say, progressive or left wing or in the U.S., uh, you know, Democratic voters uh, and, you know, kind of do their best to split those people up into a bunch of different districts in order to uh, dilute their vote. You know, one of the best examples of this, I think, in the U.S. is Austin, Texas. Um, Democrats dominate presidential elections in Austin and in the county that contains Austin. But that area is divided up into six different House districts, and the Democrats are a minority in five of them. So this area, which is a, you know, a heavily Democratic area, Democratic presidential candidates run away with elections in this area. It only winds up sending one Democrat to Congress. Uh, and that's you know, that, that, what, whatever you think of the Democratic Party, uh, I think we, we, we probably should agree that that is a violation of, um, you know, some basic Democratic, uh, you know, principles. Then we talk about packing. Packing entails cramming as many of the opposing party's voters uh, as possible into a single district or as few districts as possible. So what winds up happening then is um, uh, this results in a huge number of, you can call them wasted votes uh, for victorious candidates and heavily you know, in particular in heavily democratic areas. So what this all tends to do uh, is that it makes the Democrats structural challenges uh, arising from their geographical concentration uh, even worse than it already is. Uh, and it uh, just tends to reinforce, uh, you know, uh, the, these pre-existing tensions or divides between kind of more urban areas and, and more rural areas. Uh, and when partisanship uh, tends to kind of overlap uh, or get grafted onto uh, that kind of uh, basic uh, urban rural split or divide or tension, it's not good. And it tends to polarize politics along the lines that we've seen, uh, you know, in this country over the last um, couple of decades, uh, at least. And unfortunately, that makes it very, very difficult um, to um try to brought, uh, to bridge um, that kind of urban-rural divide um, because of how what, what the, 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 the incentives um, that, that uh, parties, that candidates face, say, when they're running for office and they have to figure out who to appeal to. You know, it's very difficult, for example, for somebody like an AOC who represents, um, you know, an extremely urbanized area in the Bronx and Queens to try to make appeals for example, to kind of more rural, small town or exurban voters because they're not in her district. Uh, and she's got to appeal to, you know, the people that live in, in her own district, which is very urbanized. Uh, so it, and, and, you know, that that kind of dynamic plays out over and over again across, say, the Democratic Party, uh, which then just tends to reinforce these these sorts of uh, uh, divides or tensions that that, that already exist. Is there any example of someone that has been able to do this? Not too many recently. Um, one particular example that you can think of is somebody like a Bernie Sanders. Uh, you know, Bernie is from a very rural state. Um, you know, the biggest city in, in Vermont is, is Burlington, which is, you know, quite small uh, in terms of population. Uh, but, you know, when he ran for president, uh, for example, he was most popular precisely 
in, in these sorts of, you know, more urban or metropolitan areas where you've got, you know, large numbers of younger, uh, you know, working people in particular. How has he been able to, to do this? Um, you know, I think that's a complicated question. Uh, I think one of the reasons why he was able to appeal very broadly and, um, uh, you know, win election to the House of Representatives in a place like Vermont uh, is precisely because it's so small and Vermont only has, you know, one House seat. The state is a district. Uh, and so in that, in that sense, it's kind of, an, I think, an exception that sort of proves the rule here about, you know, the size of districts and, and what have you. So this is a really challenging problem. Um, I don't have any particularly good uh, ideas as to how to try to bridge it or, or, or deal with it. Um, you know, I think it's something that's going to require a lot of um, organizing, a lot of strategizing, and a lot of trial and error uh, over time because it's a, it, it's a problem that's already baked into the structure of representation uh, and mm-hmm. made worse uh, by all the various stratagems that the Republican Party uh, uses to try to lock in and, you know, increase even more uh, that advantage that's that's already baked in for them. So, Chris, I think this is going to be our last question for you, but I just want to follow up on um, what you were saying about some of these structural constraints, right? So, you know, when we're thinking about, like, what the left should do to try to safeguard or even expand democracy and voting rights in the U.S., I think that we often come up on this kind of like snowball effect problem, where, as you pointed out earlier, like we can't or, you know, it's like the Democrats can't get a voting bill across the finish line because of the Senate, which is in and of itself a kind of unrepresentative, undemocratic institution. Um, You've talked in your you've talked in your Catalyst essay about work by Barton Gillens and Benjamin Page. They, of course, famously uh, did some research that, you know, found that the top 10 percent of income earners in the U.S. have undue influence on the political system and because of that, what do they do? They vote for laws or they support laws that like re-entrench their power and, you know, roll back uh, rights for everybody else. So again, it's kind of, it, it almost seems like an insurmountable problem at times. So I'm wondering if you can kind of end by um, maybe maybe talking a little bit about where you think the left can go. Um, I know that in your essays, you have often talked about the role of the labor movement in trying to expand democracy. Sure. Um, tough question. The million dollar. Right. <laughs> there, there, you know, there, there are tons of like chicken and egg sorts of problems here. Right. Uh, of the sort that you just uh, alluded to. Um, and that all makes it extremely difficult to try to find a way out of this sort of impasse. Um, it's a real impasse. Uh, and, you know, I don't think in all of the reams of, you know, books and, and research and articles that I've read about this and, uh, you know, the thing, thing, thinking that I've done about this, it's like, yeah, no, no one's got a really good way out, uh, precisely because, you know, the constitutional order that we have is like this sort of self-regulating um, machine uh, that um, is, is like by design, uh, you know, kind of uh, <laughs> extremely difficult to to alter or change in any kind of uh, uh, fundamental way. Um that doesn't mean, though, that, uh, you know, the situation is hopeless or there's nothing that people can do to try to, uh, you know, move the country uh, to a place where, um, you know, some some more fundamental changes uh, uh, and a greater degree of democracy uh, in American politics may become possible. Um, 
this may not be the most satisfying answer, um, but the, the, the sort of uh, strategy or path that I can conceive of to try to get uh, uh, towards that goal is kind of twofold. You know, one is just continuing to, uh, you know, build the power uh, of the left, uh, of the labor movement, uh, of various social movements um, uh, as widely and as broadly as we possibly can to keep building um, our movement in the places where we've already been able to establish something of a foothold, um, say like here in New York City, where, where I live, uh, and in Brooklyn in particular, um, but also trying to, um, you know, build out uh, our, our presence more widely, picking a few, um, you know, states uh, and areas within states uh, that are, you know, I think particularly important in, in national politics and where, um, you know, the local political and social context might be favorable on one level to, uh, to some degree of, of left-wing organizing. Um, you know, I think that we would probably find some of those places in states like, uh, you know, kind of Northern Rust Belt states, places like Michigan, places like Wisconsin, uh, what have you. And then I think you might also find those places in, um, you know, Southern states. Um, I'm thinking places like, uh, Kentucky, where there are some, uh, you know, important say logistics, uh, clusters where some very important labor organizing can be done where there are some larger towns and smaller cities uh, where, where an organized left um, might be able to, to uh, establish or keep building a foothold, like say in Louisville, uh, and to keep uh, yeah, growing the left in places where we're already weak so that uh, potentially we can build power uh, at the state level uh, and even maybe even send some people to Congress um, who can provide additional votes uh, for some of these bills um, that make some headway, but uh, uh, can't get over the final hurdle. In addition to that, you know, I think if we're ever going to see, I think, some kind of uh, movement towards some sort of new, I don't know, settlement uh, or some sort of uh, new reconfiguration of the party system or the, the the system of representation in this country, you know, I think it's likely that that results from some sort of um, some sort of crisis, and particularly some sort of crisis that comes out of. Uh, a conflict-ridden presidential election. Uh, you know, American politics today turns on the presidency, um, both during the campaign period and then, you know, during during the period of, of any administration. Um, it's the fulcrum, and I think that's the, the that's the thing around which American politics is structured. Uh, and you know, our system for electing presidents in this country is just so absurd um, and uh, archaic. Uh, that, um, you know, we're, we're lucky uh, in, a, in a sense that it doesn't produce uh, more situations like, uh, say, the year 2000 uh, than, than it does. Um, one of the more remarkable things about it is that it hasn't produced more of these sorts of situations. Although over the last, what, 20 years, uh, you know, we've had, uh, you know, George W. Bush uh, and uh, 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 Trump uh, be, be elected uh, through the Electoral College while losing the popular vote. Um, I think we'll probably continue to see things like that happen. Um, and if, for example, the Democrats can start winning states like Texas on a regular basis and the Republicans can't regularly take Northern Rust Belt states out of the Democrats column, this then changes the potential calculations the parties make. Maybe it gives uh, the parties incentives to try to change uh, the, the system that they don't have now. Um, Maybe if there's an election where one of the candidates can't rack up an electoral college majority, which would then throw the election to, to the House of Representatives, 
something that hasn't happened since 1824. People look at that and they say, this whole system is crazy. Maybe we need to change it. So I think that, um, you know, the, the people are going to have to keep organizing and fighting to build power where we don't currently have it um, so that we can appeal to a broader audience. Um, and then, you know, I think that we have to keep an eye out for various contingencies and unexpected developments, particularly as they come in the arena of presidential politics and campaigns, uh, you know, that might result in some crises and openings that uh, don't currently exist and, you know, could provide openings for um you know, both a popular movement to demand these changes and also to, you know, alter the calculations and incentives that, um, you know, political elites have. Um, in any case, it's hard to see how the current um, system or structure we have is particularly sustainable. Uh, you know, it seems like this setup is, um, you know, on something of a crash course. Uh, I don't know how long uh, this can all kind of continue without resulting in some sort of serious um, crisis, um, you know, and that what happened on January 6th, I think, uh, I hope it's not a foretaste of things to come. Uh, but yeah, uh, I think that was a pretty shocking event. Um, and, um, you know, it, it, it both reveals the extent to which the right wing in this country, uh, has become just very contemptuous of even the minimal and limited forms of democracy we have in this country. And I also think it's heightened and highlighted, uh, the importance of this kind of democratic uh, agenda and these sorts of basic democratic questions um, for the left. I think for a long time, this has gone um, kind of under, uh, we haven't paid enough attention to it. It's kind of gone under the radar for us. Uh, you know, we've tended to um, uh, pay attention to, you know, questions of inequality and distribution and what have you, which are certainly central to, to our politics and to our agenda. Uh, but I think these questions of, uh, you know, uh, of democracy, uh, of our political system, of the basic nature of the regime that we live in and operate in and have to work in are really important. They're becoming increasingly more important. Um, uh, and I think that they're going to be uh, the fulcrum increasingly around which a lot of American politics uh, revolves. Well said. Uh, again, Chris Maizano is an editor and contributor to Jacobin and Catalyst. Uh, definitely check out his writing at both of those spots. Uh, Chris, thank you so much and great to see you. Of course. Thanks again for having me. Thanks, Chris. All right. All right. Well, I know that we have our next guest uh, waiting patiently, so let's get to it. This is a very special Labor Paul uh, segment because we actually have two Pauls. That's right. Um, all right. So I'm going to welcome our guests. You know, speaking of electoral democracy, let's now move to democracy in the labor movement. So our guest today is Paul Trujillo. He is a UPS worker and a steering committee member of Teamsters for a Democratic Union. So welcome, Paul. Thanks. Thank you for having me tonight. Yeah, of course. Um, so maybe let's start out, I mean, first for our, our listening audience. I mean, can you explain, first of all, what is Teamsters for a Democratic Union? What are some of the main goals of this organization? And what would you say are some of the, before this most recent election, the main victories that you've won in the past? Okay. Um, so Teamsters for a Democratic Union, or, or TDU as we refer to it, um, is a grassroots organization that has focused heavily on training up leaders. Um, we allow basically any member to come in and learn what it is first to be a union member and to give them the skill set they need to be effective, whether that be as a union steward or as a union officer. Uh, they've also served as the watchdog for the Teamsters Union since 1976, uh, trying to ferret out corruption and, and make sure that uh, the, the, the members will be done. 
as far as, as uh, big victories leading up to this this point, um, we credit TDU with, with being able to actually vote as a Teamster Union member. Not all members, not all unions uh, actually vote for their leadership. And TDU is key for, for winning the ability for Teamsters to to actually cast it as a member a vote uh, for their leadership. Uh, additionally, um, when it comes to more recent victories, um, we've worked very hard within the, the pension movement to uh, to get uh, pension protections back in place with the Butch Lewis Act, and TDU has been instrumental in, in putting that into place. And then also we, uh, more recently within our convention, we were able to get the uh, two-thirds rule, which was in place. Now, the two-thirds rule, uh, to give you a quick background on it, is Teamsters could vote against the contract, but unless two-thirds of the members uh, voted against it, even if the, the majority voting uh, did not vote in favor of it, the contract could still be enacted, which we saw with our previous UPS contract. So this previous Teamster convention, we were able to remove the two-thirds rule. So that's kind of where we are currently with it. Yeah, and we actually had Kim Paff on the show, uh, feels maybe even a, a year ago, to talk about the uh, big pension victory. Um, and so in this most recent election that everyone's talking about, well, in the previous election, I believe it's 2017, if I'm correct, um, the slate backed by TDU lost very narrowly. And then this time, it really wasn't even close. And I'm sure you have the numbers on hand you can talk about if you want. But, I mean, what do you think were the main issues that motivated so many members to vote differently this time around? Well, so a big part of that, like you said, last go around, we brushed our fingertips against it. We came so close within a few thousand votes of taking the rank and file, taking control of the union, uh, which hadn't happened since the early 90s. Um, This go around we recognize that TDU can't do it alone. And this time we built a coalition and this coalition of, of leaders across the country put together that were focused one that believed that we could win and two were the right people to have in the jobs. So this coalition worked together to, to put the, the people in place. What we learned from, from running a grassroots organization from, from running a grassroots campaign previously that you needed boots in the ground, but you also needed to be better put together, better structured in order to, 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 to get the win. So we knew we could do it and we knew how to do it this time. So we, we learned from our mistakes and we were able to put it in place. Like you said, we, we came very, very close last time, but uh, this time it was in, in a quite an impressive uh, margin of victory. And, you know, what kind of organizing did you do in the years prior to the election that kind of laid the groundwork for this victory? And what were some of those issues that you kind of got members mobilized around first before translating that into like an electoral victory. So a lot of this, again, boils back to that UPS contract. The the vast majority of Teamsters voted against it. It was still shoved in our face. Uh, So we had what we call the vote no movement. And if you had Ken on previously, I have no doubt that he he spoke at at great length about that. Um, But we were against this contract. We did not want to create a, a second tier of workers and we've used that as somewhat of a rallying cry uh, when organizing members from the ground up. You know, there's no reason that two people doing the exact same job should make different money. Uh, it, it's a fundamental uh, part of being union for equality. And this was a, a great inequality uh, being foisted upon us. So in addition to using that as a rallying cry, it was continuous grassroots organizing, especially on behalf of TDU. 
um, meetings at the convention, constant trainings, uh, learning how to deal within the subpar contract that we had, learning how to use that contract to your best advantage. And DDU has been instrumental with, uh, with, with holding trainings year round, especially during the pandemic with the virtual trainings available and has kept the members both energized and connected into the labor movement as a whole. And, you know, what do you think will be the priorities for this new leadership going forward in their first term? I assume it's like a four-year term. Um, you know, what, what are going to be some of the main things they'll focus on as a priority to do differently? And what kind of challenges and obstacles do you think they'll face? And you kind of referenced briefly, the last time there was a reform leadership was in the 1990s with, with Ron Carey. And, you know, of course, he, had, he wasn't like he was able to just easily implement everything he wanted to. They were difficult, different obstacles within the union. So what do you think the priorities will be and what kind of obstacles will this new leadership have to contend with? So, yeah, like you said, you know, this is a big ship. It's very, very slow to turn. Um, so the, the number one thing that we're going to have to do from day one is going to be regaining the, the faith and the trust of the members. You know, we, we look at this turnout of the election, and while we won overwhelmingly, it's the lowest turnout that we've had in history. And part of that is members are, you know, they feel distant from the international. They're not connected. And they saw previously their votes didn't matter. Their vote wasn't respected. Their voices were, went unheard. So part of that's going to be rebuilding with internal organizing to show that, that you know, this is a union you can have faith in. This is a union that, uh, that you can trust and is strong. Um, priorities, you know. The biggest, baddest uh, dog in the fight right now is, is Amazon. And that's going to be a priority as far as uh, figuring out how to take on Amazon and, and organizing that. But more immediately, we do have two national contracts that we'll be addressing almost from day one, which is our, our uh, car haul contract and then our UPS uh, national contract. And so getting a strong UPS contract is going to go a long way of getting buyback from the members to get them more involved with the international. And just to follow up on Amazon, you know, again, there's a lot of buzz about, you know, this new leadership taking on Amazon. Of course, we know just because you have good leadership doesn't mean that organizing Amazon is going to be easy. I mean, do you have any thoughts on kind of like what, how this might play out? What should kind of be the approach towards Amazon in the coming years, knowing that, of course, we're not going to do this in just a year? So this is this is the million dollar question, right. um, you know. If, if you saw today, uh, you know, Bessemer, Alabama has been ordered to rerun their uh, their Amazon election. Mm-hmm. So all eyes are, are once again going to be on Amazon. As far as method of taking it on, the first step that we're going to need to do is show that our contracts are the best. And that's going to start with our UPS contract to show that we do have strong language, that we can back it up, that our members are proud of the contracts that we negotiate with. Because it is a, a problem when negotiating to have a contract that all your members are upset about. It's an easy thing for companies to point at. It's an easy, low-hanging fruit for the the union busters that companies like Amazon employ. Um, the second facet of that is no matter how much money the Teamsters have, we're not going to have enough money to order to to hire. You know, call it the the ten thousand organizers it would take to launch a a, a massive traditional style organizing drive at, at Amazon, which means getting grassroots buy in. And again, part of that is rebuilding the the faith of our members. And part of that is training people, giving them the skill set. So in the near future or in the immediate future, that's going to be identifying leaders and giving them the skills they're going to need to take on Amazon. And then using traditional methods 
uh, within organizing, such as salting and things like that. Uh, but also we need to start thinking outside of the box. We keep taking these companies on one at a time, and that hasn't been working. Taking a company on like Amazon at a single barn, something like Bessemer, they're able to throw millions and millions of dollars of anti-union resources against us. That's not going to work. We're going to need to divide and conquer Amazon, make them fight on multiple fronts. So we're going to need to build coalitions and to train up better leadership for that. And just to I'll go off script for a little bit, it just kind of entered my mind as you were talking about, you know, thinking outside the box and building coalitions. I mean, do you see any role for the quote unquote organized left in the fight against Amazon? I mean, you know, do you have D- DSA chapters, for example, scattered across the city, some with more capacity than others? Um, you know, do you think for someone out there who's maybe like, you know, I'm not an Amazon worker, or I'm not a union member, but I want to help in the fight against Amazon. Do you, do you envision there could be any role for someone like that? Absolutely. And it, it's going to be important to include, again, non-traditional roles. We, we've tried going about this the the old ways, where you got an organizer standing up front, passing out cards, yelling at everyone, bringing them in. That doesn't work anymore, okay? They have, they have our playbook. We don't deviate from it. And so using groups like the DSA to work alongside us is would be a tremendous asset. Um, you know, we have seen a tremendous shift since we've had the uh, – I believe what Texas A&M is, is, is titling the great resignation since that has started taking place. Um, you've seen workers in a much larger numbers flock to non-traditional organizing uh, methods. We've seen companies actually investment capital back companies doing apps to, to organize where people, you know, can, can in, do, organize independently their own groups. You don't need a big union uh, to do that. So taking structures like that, and partnering with groups like the DSA to help us with, you know, hey, we need to, you know, put literature out here. We need contact people for these, you know, these geofence groups or, or however you want to group them apart or group them together. Um, having more allies and more boots in the ground is going to be tremendously large or tremendously helpful. And seeing the changes within legislation that we have, have currently has been tremendously helpful and, and heartening for the labor movement, you know, uh, Joe Biden, for his faults, has been, in my opinion, a, a, a friend of labor thus far and has done great things for us um, in righting the wrongs that we've seen under the previous four years. So um, even in in lobbying for additional legislation changes, things like, you know, I'm, I'm in a right to work state. So things like fair share fees or, or you know, repealing right to work as, as a um, as a, a ultimate goal, things like that help us in our organizing, period. So whatever role somebody wants to play, there is a role in these coalitions. There is a way for you to help. And uh, we're more than happy to have them on board. All right. And then, you know, lastly, shifting back to UPS. So, I mean, as a UPS worker, I mean, what are some of the changes you've seen in the company, um, you know, over the years? And what do you kind of see as specifically going to be the main sticking points in that 2023 contract fight with UPS? Well, so the, the first one, again, low-hanging fruit, is our Article 22 fours, um, which are, are, are they're package car drivers that, that make $6 an hour less for doing the same job. So the people that you see coming to your house delivering packages, some of them make a higher rate than others just because they were classified differently. That's going to be our very first fight. Um, the other things are going to reflect more of the world around us since the pandemic and and, and because of the pandemic. So we've seen with the great resignation, we've seen a demand for higher wages. Uh, UPS is used to being a premium employer paying higher rates. When I started um, 
in 2007, uh, it was considered premium because we got insurance very quickly. We were paid an okay wage, um, but it was, it was rapidly raised. Now we're paying the same as a Walmart, the same as as uh, the the corner store, and that doesn't get the employees that stick around. That doesn't get employees that uh, that, that want to be there. So raising the part time starting rate and creating a living wage for part timers in a more defined path towards full time for them rather than just package car, basically going back to the, the Ron Carey era of creating full-time inside jobs uh, is going to be a, a major focus within this contract. But the, the, the biggest thing that I'm hearing from, from drivers and from, uh, from coworkers is they want defined contract. They want to clarify a lot of the language within the contract. And that starts with the defined work week. Since this, this pandemic has started, many people have been working six days a week. Most of my coworkers are over two years now working six days a week, uh, forced overtime, and there is no relief in sight. So getting better defined work week, a five-day work week would be a wonderful, wonderful thing um, in greater pyramiding of our of our overtime or greater structure of the overtime because at this point, the company is just willing to pay out whatever it takes to get the job done. And it makes for, for very difficult for a person to have a home life. So these are going to be the focuses, I think, that we see from members um, looking at the UPS contract um, realistically in the very near future. All right. Well, Paul, I'm excited. You know, I will definitely be on the picket lines at the UPS facilities in Philadelphia. Um, but thank you so much for coming on. I'm really excited to see what the future holds for the Teamsters. Hey, thanks a lot, Paul. I appreciate it. All right. Have a good one. You too. Double labor, Pauls. I know, right? This is a... Uh... <laughs> Dream I, come true. I just want to. I, I just want to quickly shout out uh, the other Pauls, uh, Ron Carey, and Christmas swag in the background. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> I think Paul has me beat on the beard. I gotta mm, say, yeah, you're um, you're try, you're trying, you're trying. Yeah, you know. Um, but yeah, it's um, pretty exciting stuff, and mm-hmm. um, you know, and I I really think um, you know the left, whether it's DSA or other groups to really think about this upcoming UPS fight and getting mm-hmm. involved as much as possible. You know, I actually met Richard Hooker, who we had on the show twice, is the president of the Teamsters in Philadelphia. You know, we actually met... Future through, president of the USA. Yes, Just future president, <laughs> the, the anti-political uh, politician. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, we met uh, through support DSA had done for the 2018 fight, um, you know, and, and he kind of go- went, went on from there. So, you know, I mean, this is a really key opportunity for the left to connect with the organized working class on a really, you know, and, and I, I, my take kind of is that I think the fortunes of organizing Amazon, I think a lot of that actually could depend on what the confrontation with UPS looks like. If there's a very successful contract, whether mm-hmm. it comes from a strike or not, I think that would be a signal to me, many Amazon workers to be like, you know, we, we want that too. We, we want to do that here. Um, so that, it will be a big moment the left should focus on. Yeah, I thought that was so interesting when Paul was, when you had asked him that question about Amazon and he was like, well, actually the first thing I'm going to go to is the UPS contract. Um, I mean, I, I, you know, I think that he's probably right. I mean, he would know better than me, but it made me think about how, you know, when I was working in media, um, I was part of the News Guild and the News Guild like sort of famously got what I thought were pretty good contracts um, because, you know, they... Well, actually, I don't really know the history of the News Guild and why they got good contracts. But the point is that um, precedent is really important, right? So like once you got once you have a shop that has like amazing like parental leave, you know, like paid time off, uh, 
I don't know, like health, health insurance, so on and so forth, just like everything that you can get into the union contract that provides a really useful template for other shops to use down the line. Um, But it also works the other way. So, you know, the other union that has tried to organize media and and especially digital outlets is Writers Guild. Um, And, you know, I like, I don't want to like talk bad about like, you know, any, any union or like any contract or whatever, but, you know, just as a point of comparison, one of the first uh, shops that they organized was the dearly departed Gawker and Mm. they negotiated a contract RIP. Right. Um, But they negotiated a contract that did not include just cause, uh, which kind of is the backbone of, you know, any good union contract, right? Like that's something that you need to have. Um, And, and as a result of that, uh, once it came time for, you know, News Guild and Writers Guild to organize other shops, what you saw was management at those companies pushing back or trying to strike just cause from those contracts by saying, well, Gawker doesn't have it. So that's just all to say that precedent precedent works, you know, in both ways, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and I think people should just be aware, like there was a lot of kind of articles kind of hyping up this team selection in relation to Amazon, which I mm-hmm. think as they should, but I think people right. should realize like, it's not like it's going to be like in two months tomorrow, there'll be this <laughs> yeah. massive, and you know, it, it will take time. But um, again, I think there's no better moment in terms of how the leadership is lining up now than to, to have some really like interesting experiments trying to organize Amazon. And again, just, and not forgetting the existing contracts, I think mm-hmm. UPS being the biggest one. Um, and that's something I think, could really be like a rallying point for the left. And, you know, he, he mentioned the last time reformers took over the teams was in the nineties. And the product of that was the 97 UPS strike, which I would argue is uh, probably like the most successful national private sector strike in the last like 25, 30 years. Um, So, you know, we, who knows what can happen in these, in these coming years. Well said. Uh, well, uh, stay, you know, stay tuned, everyone, to be continued. Right. Uh, I also want to mention, uh, we're going to have Jane McAlevey back on the show sometime next month. So if, you know, this tickled your fancy and you want to hear more about it, I'm sure she'll have a lot to say. That's right. All right, Paul, uh, any any last closing thoughts for tonight? Uh, I thought it was a great show. Uh, yeah. Really enjoyed hearing from Paul and Chris, so... Yeah, just uh, long live the Pauls, uh, <laughs> double labor Paul. That's uh-huh. the feature, you know, uh-huh. so. Um, really quick, are you still taking questions for labor Paul? I am, I know. I've been, I've been slacking You've on You've been that. neglecting. Maybe, yes. maybe for the Jane McAlevey episode, you'll finally bust out right. some answers for the people. Yes, there are some standing questions, but again, you can also quickly in these last few minutes, um, yeah, type any questions for me about labor history, labor politics, um, Labor organizing, I will do my best to answer them. You're also on Twitter, right? I am, at Paul underscore Prescott. Um, I'm slowly learning how to use Twitter. Uh, maybe, slowly... you'll, maybe you'll get a reply. <laughs> yes, right. You can also, right, uh, the moderator is working on it for me. But yeah, you can tweet <laughs> at me, um, and I will do my best to answer your question. All right. Well, thank you, everybody, for watching, and we will see you next week. Night. Nice.